Hey everyone, this is Luke Wyatt, and you're listening to The Vote Podcast. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I have a dream. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Read my lips. And that's not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The best is yet to come. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. But the nation will have a new birth of freedom. A government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. everyone my name is luke wyatt thank you so much for coming back to the vote podcast this is episode two of the vote podcast and today we have a really great show for y'all we have the honorable mr stevie ray with us here today we're going to talk about some people on kentucky history who's not normally mentioned in the textbook we're going to talk about some current events and politics and what mr ray thinks of our current event has history really repeated itself or is this a new foundation that our democracy has seen Finally, we're going to talk about John F. Kennedy and his legacy because the anniversary of his assassination has just passed. We're going to talk about John F. Kennedy, his legacy, and we're also going to talk about his assassination. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This is going to be a good one. Without further ado, let's introduce the Honorable Mr. Stevie Ray. He's going to come here and he's going to talk a little bit about the presidency of John F. Kennedy. Some famous historians here, you know, in Kentucky, and just talk about the updates of current events in U.S. politics in our history. And, you know, Mr. Ray, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and tell you who you are? Good morning, Luke. Thank you for having me. Luke and I met at Kentucky Boys State, of which I served as political program director for 10 years. And I was quite honored that you asked me to drive down to Murray today, which I have. Uh, your introduction is certainly overglowing for who I am. I'm a retired funeral director. I do not practice anymore. I do maintain my license, but I do love history and I love Kentucky history. So thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And one thing I like to add, you know, every time I, I've, I've been blessed to do many different types of clubs, many different political clubs. And, you know, when I went to Kentucky Boy State, when Mr. Ray was the director of Boy State. It was, I was skeptic because you always hear that life-changing clubs and things that may change your life. And I'm going to be honest with you. I would not be as interested as I am in politics. I would not be doing this political show, history show, or anything without Boy State, but not only Boy State, but Mr. Ray as a director of Boy State because he, the passion he has for Kentucky history and for politics in general is just amazing. And it, it really was a landmark you know, choice to go to that club and go to that conference and, you know, go to Boy State in Campbellsville. And that one thing sparked me. And, you know, without Kentucky's Boy State, I don't know if I would be as invested in politics as I am. So it really was a life-changing experience. So I have a lot of thank to Mr. Ray here for, you know, just my passion, you know, the person I am today. So I just want to say thank you, Mr. Ray, for that aspect of my life. You're most welcome, but it was a team effort. Uh, It takes a lot of people to make things happen and uh, I've always said, if you just influence one person, uh, you've done your job. Well, you, you influenced me. Well, I hope thank so. You. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've seen young men come and go, and uh, I've seen many out of that program excel. And I really grow tired and weary that, that we're going to Hades in a handbasket. My father is 88 years old. He said his grandfather said that when he was young. So I think that's just a common statement. But yes, there's good and bad and all. But I really 
uh, I don't see the future as being dim. I see it very bright uh, with individuals who really care. Thank you, Mr. Ray. I mean, that's, that's, I see it growing as well. You know, as we continue our process in the political atmosphere in society, you know, people are always going to be more vocal. People are going to speak their mind. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that our generation and generations to come can, you know, leave it better than we found it for future generations as well. So I'm really excited to see what the future holds as well. Well, I, I think we see uh, apathy. Uh, that's in general. But I, I just don't – I really struggle sometimes with where we are. But things ebb and flow. Uh, the tide turns. Uh, we just have to look at history, and it repeats itself. And I think we're all aware of that if we're students of history. So that kind of gets into one of my questions. You know, you're really involved in Kentucky politics and politics in general. And you always hear the term that history repeats itself. Do you think today's political atmosphere and what's happening and you know at the federal level and state level has it repeated itself before? Has this can you compare this to any other time where this kind of you know being a new foundation being built upon? Well, you know, our democracy and, and our government is, is certainly in its infancy as if you look opposed to, you know, Chinese government uh, even though it's communist, you look at European governments, uh, their history certainly is far, you know, they have buildings older than our Constitution. And we live in the greatest country in the world, even with its flaws. And I do think that uh, we are repeating ourselves in some manner. And I just it's, just, it's just a cycle of life. It just really is what it is. It really is. And, you know, I'm still young. I still, I, the things I do learn about, I can see kind of the, the similarities in it, but also I can see the differences in it. So, you know, whether that may be the differences in characteristics, but the main atmosphere and the main general of it is still the same, I feel like. But I do feel like it's kind of repeating itself. But like you said, it's a circle of life. And, you know, the, the Constitution is really young and stuff. We do have one of the oldest constitutions, but it's still really, still fairly new. Our democracy is, is changing. Yes. Well, let me give you an analogy. Uh, November the 11th was the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And that was, of course, in 1921 when that happened uh, there at Arlington Cemetery. And uh, you look at the climate politically at that time, the Democrats hated the Republicans, the Republicans hated the Democrats, and, uh, you know, you had Woodrow Wilson who suffered a stroke out west, and they brought him back, and basically his wife ran the country, and even the vice president did not know that he was sick, according to what you hear and read. Uh, we weren't there, of course, neither you or I, so we have to rely on historians. But, you know, we're in a climate today that uh, I don't see us, you know, failing. But, uh, you know, the two parties, even within their own ranks, are not getting along. You see the what I call the left liberal fighting with the moderate Democrats. Then you see the Trump Republicans fighting the moderate conservative Republicans. So, you know, we'll meet in the middle at some point because we have to come to an understanding that for the citizens of this country, we're going to have to, what I call, just negotiate and just say, look, I'm right, you're wrong, you're right, I'm wrong, but let's do this for the good of our country. And I, I think we'll, but I just see divisions on both sides, as I'm sure you do. You know, when I was in D.C. this summer, you can definitely see the divide in certain aspects, but I do believe that, you know, we can work it out, we can get it better for, you know, our country and stuff. And one thing I was thought was really interesting, you know, the Republicans are in the minority party as it stands, but... You know, this summer when I was up there, they the GOP shot down, I think, the voting the voting bill uh, up there. So it kind of seems the minority party still has a big majority, a big voice in it. So what do you think about that? Just because I know the majority party, like the Democrats, wants to get all these bills passed. But, you know, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and some of the Republicans are standing strong because so, they need that 60 vote. And I mean, and it's, it, I think it allows for more cooperation, that 60 vote. But it's still like... It feels like the minority party still has a big say in the the voting system and everything that's going on in the Senate. Well, you look at the division of the, of the Senate, it's 50-50, which means the president of the Senate, who's the vice president, would, would, would break the tie. But let's go back historically to our country and we look at where we were and where we are. You know, it's, it's, it's an up and down tide. Uh, we had the Civil War, which was a traumatic tragedy uh, and a time in our country. Uh, then we had what we call Reconstruction, which we saw good and bad in that. And then the Industrial Revolution came along. 
We were flying high economically. Then the Great Depression came. War is always an economic factor. We had World War II come along. Then we had some issues in the 50s. And then the 60s, you know, in the 70s, we had, you know, inflation. We had gas prices through the roof. So you see that today. And, and then, you know, we've had good and bad times, you know, and the tax issues are always an issue between the two parties. But I believe in the stability of our country. I believe in the stability of our three uh, positions that uh, are held uh, in our government, the executive, the, the uh, you know, judicial and the legislative. Uh, it's not perfect, but what is perfect? Explain to me any other country that works without any flaws. And I just, you know, I just think we need to be positive about where we are. Exactly. And I, I think that's such a great message. And I could not put that in the words the way you just did right there. That was perfect. And, you know, as a country progresses and the country goes on, what do you think some of the key focuses that we as a country need to focus on as we progress further into the future? Well, I mean, we're facing change. Uh, we're, we're facing technology. Uh, you know, I'm 63 years old. And I probably have shoes older than you, Luke. So I'm, you know, I'm, I have, I've, I've kind of journeyed through life to this point, and uh, it's been good to me. But I've seen things that are changing that are not. Um, I, I don't know that it's not always for the best. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not a negative. I'm a realist. I understand that you know technology is the new wave. But let me give you an example. We as a country, and that would include your generation, are very, very dependent upon technology. You live with a cell phone. You, you, you live and die with a cell phone. And you think about, let me give you an analogy, when the bomb went off in Nashville, up by the AT&T building, you know, the service in the southeast was paralyzed for a week. Well, you would have thought, you know, it was the end of the world with people. Uh, we don't communicate anymore. I know this is heard over and over, but I really wonder where we're going to be someday. You go to a bank, electricity's off, or the computers are down. They can't take a deposit. You know, you can't purchase food at a fast food restaurant if the electricity's off because, you know, everything's electronic. And uh, I, I just think we've become so dependent uh, on technology that I don't know that it's a, a totally a positive thing. I think where we are in our nation and in the world, it's wonderful, the technology that's there. But I just see us having been tested as a nation, and I'm not into, you know, the world's coming to an end and, and things of that nature. But when you, uh, when they tested the power grid, when they tested the medical records, banking, uh, the pipeline, I think that was a warning to us that at some point our nation, and it may never happen, but I think that we will be at a point that when those things are, are, are hacked or commandeered, that we're going to be in a position of, uh, it's going to be a, a very uh, interesting time in our lives when all that turns and that we have to go into another arena or that we are taken over electronically by hacking, uh, you know, and, and it's just, I think about it, it just is what it is, and I know that I'm very old school. Um, you know, there's the middle of the road. I think you can lean on either side, and I certainly want Americans to believe what they believe and, and, and value that, but the radical right wing of the Republican Party scares me as much as the liberal left. We can't even communicate and talk. You and I are in this booth together, but if I go over there in the library, two or three walls away, you and I can't even see each other, much less communicate. So it really accomplishes nothing. So I think I think we're losing the ability to communicate because of, of certain technologies. And, uh, you know, people don't want to speak anymore. They want to text. Uh, you know, they don't. I just I'd see the young men who came to Boy State, very bright young men, but they had no speaking skills. And, and even with you, you're very bright, and I appreciate what you're doing in the world, but I will make a confession to the listeners. Um, I find it very disheartening, and it's not his fault. He doesn't write cursive. Now, he's going to be an attorney. How's he going to go read old deeds, wills, documents? We're not teaching that anymore. And you say, well, it's kind of a thing of the past. But 
I really don't think it is. So today I brought a book for a child to learn cursive writing and gave it to Mr. White so he could write me a letter in cursive. I know you're going to say, well, Mr. Ray's crazy. I might be. But I think writing is a very important skill and certainly for a lawyer. And I think your friends that are in the legal profession and Judge Cunningham, who's one of your professors, would tell you that, Luke. I really do. Yeah. So, like, he did give me a book. It was a little kid's book about cursive. But, you know, when this podcast is out, whoever whoever is listening to this, Hopefully by then I'll be writing a letter to Mr. Ray in cursive and stuff because it really is. A bunch of our old documents and legal documents are in cursive because that's the language they were taught. And, you know, even Judge Cunningham, who's one of my criminal law professors, he actually, you know, writes on my exam in cursive and stuff. And I literally have to, like, take a picture of it and, like, zoom in or, like, try to figure it out or, like, what does this say just to, like, get some deciphering of it. So. I do believe there's, there is a communication issue. And one thing is I'm president of Model United Nations, and we debate, like, we, we act just like the United Nations, and we talk about things that are concerning around the world as well. And I'm on General Assembly 1, and some of the current topics that we're going to talk about is international terrorism, which people think, you know, uh, terrorism as, like, physical harm or things that hurt the nation. But as we read the description of it, the international terrorism was not like, you know, our 9-11 or anything along those lines. It was technology and about cyber hacks and things along those lines. They said that's the new generation as well. And even in Boy State, one of the directors, he worked for the CIA, and he was saying that, you know, the things I did to get into the CIA did not really mean what today you have to, because I remember someone was like, I'm interested in trying to do that. And he said, well, the things that I was qualified for today is a new era. You have to learn, you know, Arabic, learn computer science as a major, something along those lines. So I feel like time is progressing and the communication skill is really a issue. I feel like we need to have more communication, but in the communication that we have through technology, it makes us more connected, but it also, in a sense, makes us more divided. It disconnects us. It really does. There's no mm -hmm. personal level to it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, like you saying, you know, writing a letter and cursive or stuff that you can bring a connecting feel to that. You know, technology is hard to understand those tones and stuff. So I can see in the future where that could be a big concern for our nation but also you know websites and like you said our, our banking system is all online so that could be a big thing and you got to look into like how bills are going to be passed along but i do see our future coming in the, in future generations i can see it's going to be very very progressive it's going to grow it's going to change but also see it in good terms as well like is there going to be struggles along the way i do believe so but as mr ray said you know, show me a country that is perfect. It's very hard to describe perfect, but I feel like what we are doing in our country is very beneficial to each and every one of us. Well, I'd like to add this, that, that pre-COVID in February, the end of February through March the 9th, uh, my wife and I sponsored a young lady to go to actual to the actual model United Nations in, this, in New York City. So we flew up, uh, you know, sponsored her, and I, was, uh, I worked a little bit with some of the students there in New York. Of course, New York was shut down with COVID November, I mean, March the 11th, and we were home on the 9th, so we were very fortunate not to have, you know, contracted COVID and because we were all over the city, and I do love New York City, but that is a great thing. But, you know, diplomacy, uh, you know, getting together, uh, acting together, and, you know, I think Kentucky Boy State at its, at its height um, uh, and its pinnacle we saw leadership come out. We saw young men. And you know how we kind of really tutored you to stand up, look someone in the eye or be able to speak or to communicate because there are many times that very bright students do not have those skills. And it's uh, I think it's a problem for them in the future, depending on what they go into. Now, if they go into a career that doesn't require people skills or they have to communicate with people, they can probably succeed. But I think just basic 101, as I say, you, you just have to have some people skills. And, I, and I'm not negative about it. I'm just a realist. But I'm a little concerned about these generations that, and they don't, they're not taught Kentucky history. You know, that's been taken out of the curriculum. And like I said, cursive writing. I don't have children or grandchildren. Uh, and I do, I do see a lot of young people in, in my, you know, paths that I cross, but I, I just think that we need to maybe, um, you know, the new school is okay, but I like the merits of the old school mostly, and uh, I'm not stuck in my ways. I'm not stuck in a time warp, but I do see things that I think are important 
in my opinion, may not count, mm-hmm. but I do see the basics. Sometimes we have lost those. Yes, sir. I can see where that comes into play. And we'll, we'll get to Kentucky history in, a, in just a few minutes. But one thing I like to ask and one of our final questions about, you know, our nation and kind of where we are and stuff. How do you see the COVID-19 pandemic affect politics? You know, how do you think this is in the Great Depression you see that it's written in the history books and you see how it affected 20, 30 years after in the time of general? How do you think this COVID pandemic will affect our future and how does it affect politics, the Republican, Democratic Party and just affect just America in general? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, if we look at the Spanish flu, what it did to our nation, uh, we have some of the same parallels with COVID. And, uh, you know, it's a cycle. It's a basically a 100-year cycle. But uh, I have funeral director friends that uh, their great-grandparents, grandparents were in the business. And so they've gone back and looked at their books for the number of funerals they had and just kind of paralleled where we, where we are today. And uh, that's like Christmas Day uh, this past year. Uh, I had a friend in Chicago. They have three firms. They do a large volume of business. He called me and he said, you know, I've never seen this in my career, in my life. But he said, I have 265 families that I will be serving due to COVID. And and you look at the Spanish flu and, you know, you look at the mask issue. You look at uh, contagions. I mean, it just is a history itself repeating and I, I'm curious what uh, a year from now, two years from now, even 10 years from now, uh, I doubt that I'll live another 100 years, but or I doubt I'll see another cycle of 100 years, but it's going to be interesting what we may face or where we are. And I, I'm like you. I think the after effects are going to be most interesting. Uh, I do think COVID is real. I, I think it has made a large very, very large difference in many things, and we've had to adapt as they did back with the Spanish flu 100 years ago. So I do think, again, that history has repeated itself just on a different level. Yes, I do. I think so, too. And one thing, you know, the Spanish flu and, like, the Great Depression, the economic impacts and stuff it has impacted <clears throat> in, you know, the Great Depression, one of the things that really got us out of the Great Depression was, you know, kind of entering World War II. To, it helped the economy really well. Right. And you know, as we progress, I'm trying to figure out what could help our economy because I don't see any, you know, wartime situations like World War II coming again or anything like that. Well, you, you look at you look at the uh, social issues that FDR dealt with and the manner in which he basically guided the nation out of depression. I don't think we're in a depression. I think we have issues, but I, I'm watching the current administration and with great interest of um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm going to see historically, I mean, we certainly had inflation under Jimmy Carter. Interest rates went through the roof. You know, there were gas shortages. And I just, I see a parallel, but I find it really interesting, the current administration's, uh, some of their same uh, attitudes, uh, standards of, of their giveaway. Uh, I'm not saying it's bad. But I'm just I'm still out to school, as we say, and I haven't made my mind up. Time will tell if their efforts are going to pay off. And it's uh, we're really in an interesting time politically and socially, quite frankly. I think so, too. You know, I do believe history repeats itself and that there are similarities and, you know, some of the, the issues that happened in the past and it is now. But I also believe that, you know, with each generation and stuff, I wouldn't say it's more divided, but I would say it's. There, there could be a instance because it's divided because I do believe that technology plays a role in it that it, while it does make us connected in some ways, it also divides us in a lot of ways. So I think it'll be interesting to see what the future holds for 20, 30, 50 years from now. Well, you know, they talked about the former president uh, before this president stacking the Supreme Court. Uh, you go back in history and you look at what FDR did with the Supreme Court. So it's nothing new. Uh but I, I'm going to say this, you know, I love reading history and biographies. And uh, I've always said that uh, regardless of the party, you can have favorite people. And Huey Long, to me, was an effervescent politician in Louisiana. And, you know, he was shot by his own people. And uh, he was a pretty shrewd politician. But I'm going to tell you what would have happened now that didn't happen then he uh, 
he was quite the stump speaker. And as we all know, Louisiana, the northern part of that state, is Baptist. The southern part is Catholic. So he had gotten on a train and ridden north, and he'd given a speech that morning about, oh, how he would come to the area with his grandparents living there, and they would get dressed up, and uh, they would uh, get the mules and the wagons out, and they'd go to the Baptist church for church and then eat lunch on the grounds afterwards. So then he, that afternoon he was riding the train back to give a speech to southern Louisiana, and he talked about he lived in such and such parish, and um, uh, he uh, he would walk to mass with his Catholic grandparents. Now, whether they were or weren't, I haven't really determined that, but he got away with that because we didn't have instant news. You know, f things had to be phoned in or typed and then telexed in, so the newspapers were a lot different. We now have instant. If he had done and said that, you know, there had been a fact check. There would have been, uh, you know, a correction of that, and they would have called his hand on it. So I do think that, you know, whatever whatever error we're in, we need to have credibility. But it's just interesting how if it happens now, it's automatic. It's instant. Uh, I mean, you have your phone laying out over there. Something could pop up on it that just happened that we don't even know about in this booth that it's just instant now. So I, I think information's important. I think information is powerful, but I think sometimes uh, we get information that we really don't need or that it is not useful. But uh, I personally don't watch television. I, I do watch BBC on Sunday night. I love those shows, but I don't watch MSNBC or CNN. I don't watch Fox. They both spin it on each side, and I don't care to hear their opinions about how they want me as a voter or as a person to think. I think we as the electorate should read, we should study, and we should pay attention. I think so, too. And, you know, I want to thank you once again for coming here today. And I think this is a great topic to talk about, you know, current events in, like, political history and, like, you know, what we think about politics in general, like how the future holds. And, you know, one thing I, I want to lead into and one thing I want to also mention, you know, Boy State has also had some bright individuals and some bright people that has came through its program, all 50 states in the United States. And... One thing, there was a young man from Arkansas who did Boys State and voted on to go to Boys Nation, which will be represented in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol, and you'll meet the president at the White House. And there was a young man who did Boys State in Arkansas uh, who went to Boys Nation, and he met President John F. Kennedy. And that individual came on to be the president of the United States, and it was President Bill Clinton from Arkansas who did Boy State. So there's some really good people that come through this program and stuff. And to bounce off of that, you know, Mr. Ray, one of my favorite presidents of all time is President Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. I just think he's very miraculous. I think, you know, his diplomacy, just his skill, and, you know, you could say he's like American's prince. He was the, the family, the Kennedys, feel like. And it just the, the diplomacy around him, his foreign policy, and his strategy to get to the White House— I think was just amazing and just everything about him, you know, Robert Kennedy and his fight against civil rights and, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy, when he, get, when he became uh, attorney general, he didn't have any experience in legal, but he came after the mob and tried to take uh, some of the big names down. But, you know, the assassination of John F. Kennedy took a really toll on the nation as well and stuff. And I know you, you, you probably know a lot about that and you can talk a lot about, you know, President Kennedy. Well, uh, before we do that, uh, William Jefferson Clinton, or Bill Clinton, uh, did grow up in Arkansas. And there's a book, and, I, and I've had the privilege since COVID coming back from New York. I've kept count. I've read 157 books, so wow. I've, I've, I've been able to you know, spend my time doing that with uh, some other research. But Clinton's uh, family, his uncle owned a Buick dealership there in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and there's a book out called The Vapors, and it's an interesting book about the history of Hot Springs, and Oni Madden, who owned the Cotton Club in uh, New York City, after some problems and convictions, moved to Hot Springs. So read that book. It's called The Vapors. It's very interesting, and the Clintons are involved in that, uh, Bill Clinton's mother and Bill Clinton's uncle. So yes, uh, you know, he did excel, and there's been many others uh, that have been in Boys State in Kentucky or other states that have excelled. So I appreciate you, you know, pointing that out. John F. Kennedy, you were talking about things. If you read a lot of books about the Kennedy family, they were a dynasty. But if you go back to his father, 
Joe Kennedy. He, uh, you know, he served as ambassador to 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 Great Britain, mm-hmm. and of course we had a Kentuckian do that after him because he did not he did not get along with uh, Roosevelt, and he was really kind of more of a sympathizer to some issues that were against what Roosevelt believed in, and certainly during World War II. But Barry Bingham, whose family from Kentucky owned the Courier Journal, followed him. But anyway, the Kennedy dynasty is an interesting uh, story. And you look at, you know, Joe Kennedy became a bank examiner in Boston, and he was shrewd enough to see the banks that would succeed and fail. And he was a pretty shrewd investor, quite the ladies' man, the philanderer, and it's, it's been common knowledge. But uh, he, he made a lot of money during the Depression, and uh, he, mar- he cornered a lot of markets financially so he could succeed. But the story goes that uh, in order to ensure his son's uh, success, because he wanted one of his sons to be president, and uh, he, uh, he actually cut a deal with some uh, supposed mafioso. And, you know, if you look at this election, if, I, if my memory serves correct, he only won by one vote per, per precinct. You know, the margin was very slim. It was like 100,000 votes. And it would have been interesting to see what uh, John F. Kennedy would have done in the second administration based on his first. We'll never know that because, sadly, you know, he was assassinated this 22nd of November, which is just coming up. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, he, you know, that family was very political. Uh, you know, he had two brothers that, that succeeded in the political arena. None of them ever became president. And it was just very interesting where they went based on their father's uh, dreams, wishes, and really pushing them. Of course, he had a stroke later in life, and I think he died 68, 69, somewhere along there. But it's very interesting that whole—just read it. There's a lot of books out there, and it's very interesting where that dynasty has gotten to now with that next generation. And I think Judge Cunningham will, will talk about this at some point. You will read in contracts, you will read in wills, you will read in, uh, I can't remember, I'm not an attorney, so I can't remember the exact term, but you will see in documents it'll say, you know, this contract is valid until 20 years after the last, after the death of the last heir of Joseph Kennedy, and it's just real interesting, so that perpetuates, and there is a term, I can't remember what it's called, but that's used, and it's been tested before in legal circles, so it certainly works. See, I didn't even know that I was on legal documents, so it, they still play a role in, like, well, they st- still have a role, I guess, in, you know, American legal system in general, but one of the things I think John F. Kennedy is really, like, I like his diplomacy and his foreign policy, and, his, and like you said, his father was uh, his father was you know a diplomat in London, in the United Kingdom, and John F. Kennedy's daughter right now is a diplomat in Australia. So I feel like that legacy is still kind of going on. But you know, I I think there's this one book I read, and it's called JFK in the Senate: The Road to the Presidency, and in it, it kind of talks about how he won his his house seat because he won his house seat, I think in '48, somewhere around there. And he was in the House seat, I think, for six years, so three terms. And then when Eisenhower took office, but somewhere along those lines, he ran for Senate and he won. And he was the first person to be a freshman senator and ran for president and won. So I think that's, like, remarkable in that sense that he won. And the only other person to do that to this day is President Kennedy and now President Obama, who ran for Senate. They won, and then right after their first term, they ran for president, which I thought was very interesting. And, like, you know what you said? You, you, we never know what really would have happened in that second term of President Kennedy and everything, but I feel like, you know, he, the Immigration Act, the Civil Rights Act, I feel like the social aspect of our country was in a hardship in the 60s. You know, the Immigration Act of 1965 ended the quota system in our country, and, you know, the Civil Rights Act. Him and Robert Kennedy were both very passionate about, you know, battling the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights issue. So I feel like that the social aspect that it still affects our country today, which was very important and stuff. But what do you think are some of the significant things that you can take away from President Kennedy's administration and just, you know, his time in politics and stuff? Because I know there's a, you know, there, there's some backroom uh, stories about President Kennedy and stuff, but I feel like all in all, some of the things that he has done can outweigh some of the cons. Well, let me back up a little bit. Talk about civil rights, which is very important to me. If you look... And it's proven Martin Luther King 
Jr., Dr. King, was a registered Republican. Uh, his father, I mean, they were Republicans. And uh, during the Civil Rights era, uh, Dr. King was arrested in uh, Birmingham, put in jail, and the family... By the way, Dr. King's original name was Michael Jr. His father was, of course, pastor of Ebenezer Church and Baptist Church in, in Atlanta. And ironically, his mother's father was, so it's kind of a tradition. And I've actually been able to attend a service there. It's just a super place. Um, but anyway, when he was in jail, Dr. King Sr. reached out to uh, Richard Nixon, and he kind of stayed away from the issue. He didn't want any political blowback, as they say. So he reached out to Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy actually went down there and, uh, you know, helped get him out. And that's when the tide turned in the African-American community as a rule. Uh, you know, they started supporting Kennedy and Kennedy won. So I just thought that was an interesting point. Th those facts are not uh, fiction. Uh, I know that's silly to say, but, uh, you know, look it up. It is history. And it's just very ironic how things have transpired since that time. Mm -hmm. See, I didn't even know he was a registered Republican or stuff along those lines of, you know, Robert Kennedy and the shift in that. Yeah, and uh, it just it just is what it is. And then, you know, you had Johnson come along and sign the Civil Rights Bill. Really, probably not. Uh, he knew he had to do it, but he really didn't want to do it. You look at Johnson's career, he was very heavy-handed, strong-minded, and uh, very forceful. But I believe if you'll look up a statement when he wrote, when he, when he signed that bill, he said, I'm handing the South to the Republicans for the next few years. And history did, history did reveal that. It's very interesting. And, uh, you know, if you look at the, the Dixocrats and the Southern Democrats who did not want civil rights, who did not want uh, the minorities to have any power or control. Uh, it wasn't the Republican Party. It was the Democrat Party, and things changed because they were forced to do so. But I believe in equal treatment for all, not special treatment, but equal treatment. And uh, we certainly still have a ways to go in certain issues with civil rights or just rights in general. And I think it'll come with time. You know, it, it's, uh, it is a work in progress. It really is. One thing in his administration, at the very beginning of the administration, they had the Bay of Pig invasion. Right. And they did not want to use American soldiers, you know, just coming out of, this is 1960, and Eisenhower was in it. And Eisenhower was a general in World War II, and he kind of, and President Kennedy kind of inherited this Castro's kind of empire, communist empire, and what's happening over there. And, you know, Castro was even invited to the White House at one point because they thought, you know, he was going to be like a democratic leader of Cuba, but it kind of got influenced by Russia and by the Communist Party. And they had the Bay of Pig invasion stuff was a ultimate failure and stuff. And there's a Kentuckian. Yes. He was on the tip of Florida. The general and many of uh, uh, soldiers and high people in the military and, you know, on the direct line to Washington, if something went south that he was there, uh, the military was there in case something did go south. It's because Cuba's just 90 miles away, right. and President Kennedy was on the phone listening, trying to make every sure everything was underway and everything was going directly and going right the way he wanted it. So would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, I've had the privilege of being in Guantanamo Bay, uh, Cuba. I haven't been to the main part of the island. But, uh, yes, you know, if you read the history of, uh, of the Bay of Pigs, which became a disaster for Kennedy politically and otherwise, uh, that was a CIA operation at the end of the day. But Parvin Gibbs, who was the executive director of Kentucky Boys State, who got me into the program, uh, he was standing right next to the general with his thumb on the button. That's proven. Uh, he would have pushed the buttons to fire the missiles. So there's a Kentuckian that's involved, and he's from Union County, Kentucky. He's now 85 years old, and he lives in Madisonville, Kentucky. I know him rather well. Last year, uh, about a year ago, honestly, I think it was in November, my first semester here in college, I had to write a paper over the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs invasion. So I wrote a lot about that, and I actually called him and interviewed him and, uh, and got his firsthand experience of it. And, you know, that's really interesting. It's just he was on the direct line to Washington with President Kennedy and stuff. If anything went south, and imagine if we did, you know, send missiles or we did kind of like 
invade with our army and stuff and how the history books could change just dramatically, I feel like. And just having a Kentuckian, you know, and people don't think, like, it's small-town Kentucky, it's a rural area. You know, but Kentucky does have a big role in our political history. You know, we had a diplomat who succeeded President Kennedy's father for the diplomat of United Kingdom. We had someone down at Florida on the hand on the missile, on the button to, to make the missile send over to Cuba if something went south. So it was just, there's so much of Kentucky history in that. And, you know, I think that was really interesting that it was a failure attempt. But through Kennedy's diplomatic, you know, he thinks, I feel like he established a hotline to Russia, to Moscow, to talk to him. And I feel like he was the one of the big person that says, use your voice instead of using action stuff. And he was very big on talking and trying to work things out in a sense of vocally instead of to, to make sure that there was no warfare. And that's what I really liked about him as well. And would you like to elaborate on that as well? Well, I, I think if you follow history from President Wilson, who was very, very just focused on the League of Nations, and you follow the League of Nations after World War One, and you follow the Marshall Plan after World War Two, you will see the, the uh, journey, both roads led to the Cold War. And uh, I was in Berlin three years ago, and I actually got to see Checkpoint Charlie. I got to see the uh, <clears throat> what was left of the uh, of the wall, and you know you look at Berlin, the side that was bombed that was rebuilt, and you see the old buildings that still have bullet holes in them, and is the you know it, it's maintained the old part of Berlin. You see the Brandenburg Gate, and it's just an interesting town. But you look at World War II and you follow the Marshall Plan and you look at the history of it, it's really interesting where the Cold War came into play later on. And, you know, at, uh, at some point, uh, supposedly, and I, I still think that with communist countries that there are certain things that are still maintained, but, you know, President Reagan tear this wall down. And it's just interesting to see the cycle of things from the early you know, night, or the late early 1900s to where we are today, history has repeated itself. Yes, and that's I think that could be the the theme or the title of this podcast that history does repeats itself. It really does, and you know, in today's politics, and even back then, we have a you know a comparison of how history repeats itself as well. Right. And also, just to build upon that, you know, President Kennedy was just we're coming up on the. An anniversary of when he was assassinated. He got assassinated on November 22nd, right. uh, 1963, I believe. And so, you know, we're coming on the eve of when he got assassinated once again. So, and just good things about President Kennedy, just things he accomplished. In his short, you know, two and a half years, what are some of the things that, you know, was the most accomplished that you believe that are very good for the Kennedy administration that has built upon our nation as well? Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I've really read a lot of history of things he's done, things that he did, but I'm probably a little bit more attuned to talk about the assassination from that point forward because uh, I do serve as chairman of the programming for Genealogical Society of Hopkins County, and that was a, a topic very close to me. So uh, I don't think his administration was a failure in its completeness. I do think there were things that, uh, that were accomplished. But let's talk about the, uh, the assassination. It's interesting if you read uh, the potential, the way things are spun sometime, uh, here's, the, here's what we can come out of this. Did Carlos Masales, uh, who was a mafia man from New Orleans, did he and others direct the assassination? Was it a CIA operation? Or was it President John or Vice President Johnson and politicians who did not like Kennedy? As you well know, the Johnsons and Kennedys did not get along. That was a mixture of oil and water. And so you can read a lot of spin. You can read a lot of things that will lead you to believe. Uh, I don't think it was happenstance. I think it was planned. I, I, I've read... Uh, maybe 20 to 25 books on the subject over the time before I gave the program. Uh, but my perspective was from the time he left Parkland Hospital and was taken back to D.C. in the funeral, I found that interesting. But let me say this. If you read what happened at Parkland, uh, 
the coroner there did not want President Kennedy's body to leave before they could autopsy. And he did have the legal right to do that, but he was overridden by the Secret Service. So the gentleman that ran the funeral home there was connected politically, and I, and I, and I have researched all this and have the facts. They called him to provide a bronze casket to send the president to D.C. And uh, Johnson was not going to leave D.C. until he was sworn in as president. He was very adamant about that. So Judge Sarah Hughes gave him. They found Judge Sarah Hughes in a very short time. She had the uh, swearing-in information, and they were not going to leave till the, till the plane was loaded with his body in the casket. So here are some facts. If you look at the limousine he was riding in, it was blue. It was not black. Jacqueline Kennedy did not like the color black in cars. She despised it. So the presidential limousines were Fords because of Robert McManera had been with the Ford uh, Company, Ford Motor Company. But when they built that limousine, which was built by Hess and Eisenhart in Cincinnati, it's now the S&S Coach Company, uh, it, it had to be in blue, and that car has been remodeled. I think it's in the Henry Ford uh, Dearborn Village. You can see it. But uh, when they determined that the president was going to be taken back to D.C., he uh, they wrapped him in a sheet, put him in this bronze casket, and so they called the funeral director, and their request was, do not bring a black hearse. Well... Uh, it was O'Neill Funeral Home, and if you look in the pictures of the Ford ambulance that came out of the basement with uh, Oswald when he was shot, that was an O'Neill ambulance, so he had, he had a lot of connections in that town. Interestingly enough, he brought a white uh, 1963 hearse that had been purchased new off the floor of the National Funeral Directors Convention in Dallas one month before he actually got to use it in uh, November. So the car was white, and uh, they loaded the casket, and they said, we'll take it, we'll take over, we're going to take it to the airport. So that car was an M&M car, which was a Miller Meteor, and they put it in a building, and it took him about five hours to find it. But that car was sold, a Kentuckian owned it. Jim Summers was a hearse dealer in Bowling Green. He was from Texas. Uh, and he owned that car for a little while. Then a Texas car dealer who's now out of business, a hearse business, he had it on sale for eBay at on for like a million dollars. A collector bought it uh, in Colorado, I think, for less than two hundred thousand. Maybe I'm not sure of that price, but it was very, it was far stretched from the million dollars they wanted. So at one point, the hearse that transported President Kennedy from Parkland to the airport was owned by a Kentuckian. Uh, not an original Kentuckian, but a person that owned the business there in Bowling Green. So that's a point. But once he was back in uh, D.C., they took him to uh, do an autopsy there, and there's always been speculation about it. I have a friend named Keith Pruitt who lives in Nashville. He's written a book about the bullets uh, that, that, were, that were retrieved at that time. And I think if you're following history, you will see that even this president, the current president, has still blocked uh, much of the information on the Kennedys, the Kennedy assassination. It has been redacted. The information has been released. The time frame has come and gone. So there's a lot of things we will never know about that assassination. And uh, But if you look at the casket, they tried to take it through the back door, and it was too wide. It was an urn shell, bronze. So they went back down, and they, and they pried the handles off so it would go in the door. And so when they got to D.C., they couldn't use that casket. Uh, Robert Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy went to Gawler Funeral Home. Gawler's is there in Washington. Over the years, they've kind of buried the who's who, and they made the arrangements. And he was put in a Marcellus mahogany. And ever since then, now Marcellus is out of business, but that mahogany is referred to as the presidential mahogany. And the last president that used it was Ronald Reagan. And in about, oh, three or four weeks, maybe months, I'm not sure, after they produced that 
mahogany casket. They went out of business. So it's just a it's just a few facts. Hmm. That's really interesting. Just how Kentucky is tied with everything in general. Now, do you think that the CIA? I know you said the mob. You know, in the in the conspiracies and whether it was Lee Harvey Oswald or was it something along those lines. So, do you think that it could have been you know anything different from that, or do you think it is Lee Harvey Oswald? Because I know there's information that you know that would never be you know dismissed. You know, President Biden. I think I think it was just like a couple weeks ago, or it's very really recent. They still the option to release the John F. Kennedy, you know, autopsy and some of the paperwork. I mean, but I mean, it's fairly fairly recent that President Biden would not release it, and I think that's really interesting as well. Why uh, one of our beloved like American, you know, rural families, our prince, you know, would not be released and just kind of know more information about it. Well, here's another fact: um, Edward Kennedy, the bronze casket that was used to transport the president, was put in a warehouse. And after a couple of years, somewhere in 1965, there were drill, there were holes drilled in it, and it was full, filled with concrete. Uh, it was put on an airplane. It was taken out in the ocean, and it was deposited in the ocean so no one could ever find it. Um, ironically, when John F. Kennedy Jr. crashed his plane, it was very close to where they had deposited that casket. Wow. It was in the same area. That, that has been proven. Wow. See, I did not know that. So there's more ties to it and stuff. And, you know, like, not just John F. Kennedy was assassinated, but, you know, his brother Robert Kennedy was assassinated. You know, his. it seems like there's almost a curse that his family— There's a book written about that mm-hmm. called The Kennedy Curse. It's very yeah, interesting. There's, like, a curse about it. And, like, like you said, you feel like Joe Kennedy, his father, had some ties with the mafia or something along those lines. Do you think that played a role into it at all? Because I know Robert Kennedy, when he— you know, Robert Kennedy had no legal experience, and when he was an attorney general, the first thing he did was went after the mafia and went after him. So I feel like there's – and, you know, I think I read it somewhere that President Kennedy's father had extremely big ties with the mafia. And then when Robert Kennedy became attorney general, he came after the mafia. So, And some people, can, some people may say that the mafia helped President Kennedy get in office, so that's why it felt like they was getting backstabbed by the Kennedys when – John F. Kennedy's little brother was going after the mafia and like some of their friends in general. Well, you read the history of Sam Giancana from Chicago. You read about Judith Exner, you know, Camel. I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, the, it, 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 it all relates, but the truth is yet to be told. We in our lifetime may never know, but uh, as an uneducated historian, uh, I'm certainly no expert. If you read and study, it will make you think about the possibilities. I think it was a collaborative effort. Uh, I don't think it was just necessarily down to one individual. I think it was a planned event based on when you read, uh, you know, about the Secret Service the night before drinking and carrying on there in in Fort Worth. Uh, You know, the open top instead of putting the bubble glass on it. Uh, they changed the, uh, the route uh, that they were going to take, and then it was published in the paper. You look at Jack Ruby, uh, you read his history. You know, he was Jack Rubenstein. He was a Chicago mobster who went to Dallas to operate the uh, strip clubs for the mob. It, it, there's just a lot of correlations, and we could go on and on and on, but I think when you read the history of it, what's there, uh, and some books are slanted, some books are pretty factual, but there's a lot of books out there, and they're available. So if that topic interests you or anyone, uh, I think that's certainly worth delving into, and it would be wonderful, you know, winter reading with winter coming up. Yeah, for sure. And one thing I saw, like you kind of mentioned right there, that I thought that was very interesting is they released the, the route for the president, and, you know, it was open and everything. So I thought that was really interesting as well. You know, maybe it was different back then, but, you know, in today's times, I can't even imagine, you know, releasing a route for the presidency or, or uh, you know, having the limousine just open like that. When I was in D.C., I went to Arlington on Memorial Day to see President Biden's speech, and I was trying to, you know, figure out how I could see President. I tried to just just get a glimpse of him and stuff, and there was Secret Service, you know, Marines that was blocking, so you couldn't go up there and see him. But I was trying to say, like, could I see the motorcade route and stuff? And they said, well, he'll be leaving through the front, but they didn't tell me any of the specifics or anything. And you saw, like... 
he took you can see the motorcades coming and where I was standing but you had no idea how they got there like it was insane like there's a main drag where in Arlington where they come down the hill from the Team of the Unknown Soldier and I think it's like the Korean War Memorial or things right above there there's a big road they come down but they didn't take that route they took like some back routes and then they came out on the main road and went through the gates of Arlington so I thought that was interesting that they released it when President Kennedy did the motorcade route and things along those lines. Well, I, I think if you study, uh, you know, the, the Secret Service's role uh, in the protection, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the Secret Service came out of Pinkerton Agency. That was through, you know, Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. when he was uh, president. And I think that changed the whole complexity and the rules and how they did things after that assassination. It certainly changed the venue and their thinking, there's no question. On over 22nd would be the anniversary of his assassination. And just want to highlight, you know, some things about President Kennedy, talk about him, because, you know, he's one of my favorite presidents, I think, because his diplomacy and just things along those lines. And just, you know, just his charisma about him. I feel like he was a good president. And, you know, what could have been, you know, his approval rating is still very high, even though his, his short time in the office. So I thought, I think he's still really a very great president. I, I enjoy President Kennedy. And I look forward to, you know, reading some more of these books about President Kennedy as well. So I'm going to ask you a question. Um, okay. You're 21, 22? I'm 21. No, 20? I'm 20. I'm 20. 20. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, in your mind and what you have read through today, who has been the least effective president and who has been the most effective president, not in your lifetime, but historically? I want to see your perspective on that. Effective? Who's done the most and been the most effective historically from Washington forward? I think if the most effective who gets more things in office and more programs out there and to help the country, I feel like is FDR. Because I feel like FDR gave them social programs. He gave programs out there. And he was in there for 12 years and stuff, which, you know, it's almost mind-blowing now because the term said it too. But, you know, he has done a lot for the country. He got the country out of recession. We entered a war with him. We won a war, but unfortunately, he passed away during the war. So I feel like he did. He has done a lot through that as well. But you know, one of the least effective. You know, I do believe that Calvin Coolidge has had some great aspects about him because it's a roaring twenties, and he did some very great things for our country and stuff. But I also believe that he helped initiate the Great Depression as well and start the Great Depression at the very beginning, what the toward the end of the 20s. So I feel like Calvin Coolidge, while he has done a lot for the economy, it was a very short-term kind of thing and very short-term. But in the long run, it didn't help out our country. So I feel like he he did do great things. I don't feel like anyone has done anything just tremendously horrible. Like I feel like there's good in every president because, like you said, well, what is perfect? I feel like, to me, I feel like perfect is leaving it something better than we found it. And the only instance I can see something that we have not left it better than we found it is through Calvin Coolidge where he entered the Roaring Twenties. It was going good. The Women's Suffrage Act, where women could vote in 1919 was passed. We just got out of World War One. was doing great. The Twenties was doing amazing. It was a Roaring Twenties, you know, jazz music, Broadway plays was happening. It was a great time to be an American citizen and to be alive. You know, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, automotive, vehicles becoming alive and then toward the end of the 1920s that's when the great depression hit and everything so i would say him but i feel like fdr has done a lot for our country but you can't overlook you know some of the president you know bill clinton i think was a very conservative democrat because he did pass because i feel like bill clinton was very effective because he was a governor before he was a president so he understood how these states functioned and how where governors need to run and where governors need assistance at so i feel like he did a great job as well but also i feel like the economy, if you look at that sense, you know, Ronald Reagan did a great job too. In 1984, the growth of the economy was at 7.4%, was one, to, was one of the highest percentage ever. So I feel like the economy standpoint, Ronald Reagan did a great job as well. So I feel like everyone does have their flaw, but I can point out the least. And I feel like it's, uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge in the 20s. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode two of the Vote Podcast. My name is Luke Wyatt. I want to once again thank Mr. Stevie Ray for coming down here to Murray, Kentucky to be on the Vote Podcast. It really means a lot, and I hope y'all learned a lot from him as well. also want to thank y'all for just taking time out of your day to listening to the Vote Podcast. Thank you so much. I look forward to producing a next one and y'all listening to it as well. 
Thank you so much. And let me be one of the first to say, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we will see you next time on the Vote Podcast. Thank you so much and God bless. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I have a dream. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Read my lips. And that's about all I have to say to them. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The best is yet to come. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. That the nation shall have a new birth of freedom. And the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth.